Well, one thing for sure, the second article review, if you have not already uh, given me that, I do need the second article review today, meaning due if you want to submit it online through the Dropbox by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. The other thing is I know a couple of you took the lab, so if you, I know a bunch of you gave it back to me already, that's great. If you didn't, make sure I get that in today too so I can take a look at those and get everything graded and hopefully have all of this back for you on Friday. Uh, the other thing is homework five. Uh, I gave out last time, last Wednesday, gave out last week at some point and that is due a week from today. So that's the only thing due this week. Once we get the article review done, we're pretty much caught up. And then the, um, there'll be a homework due next week. Uh, the third solar observation next Wednesday, that's the last time I'll actually be collecting them before the project is due. Uh, still got about a month, almost a month from now, but that's the last time I'll actually take a look at them. And then we'll have a lab coming up in mid-November where I'll go over the calculations and graphing that are required for that. And we'll do that as a group in, in class. And then exam three covering chapter 10 and the HR diagram that we just finished uh, last week. And then 11 and 12, which we'll start on today, is coming up. That'll be the 3rd of November. So you've got about two more weeks before, before that. Yes, sir. Was the lab, is that the phases of the lunar phases? No, the, the lab was the color, the graphing, the color, the color magnitude diagrams. Graphing the HR diagrams from last, oh. from Friday. A lot, a lot of people turned it in, some people turned it in, some people took it and said they were going to give it back to me on Monday. I just wanted to remind you that it's, it's Monday. <laughs> yeah, oh, the, yeah, the other one, that was, the, yeah, that was the other one, no. That was for the other class. Anything, questions? All right, well, picture of the day for today then is uh, similar to what we saw on Friday. This is Comet Sighting Spring. And there it is, uh, very, very close to Mars. Actually passed within one-third of the moon's distance to the Earth to Mars uh, this last, uh, yesterday, this last, uh, yesterday, passed very, very close to Mars. And this is a picture of it not taken from Mars, but taken from Earth, although I am sure we are going to get some pictures from Mars uh, coming up because the rovers that were there and other spacecraft that were in orbit were also monitoring it. Uh, there were, according to the article, uh, the summary here, there were no sign of any damage to any of those craft from particles because this is a whole stream of particles that would have passed very close to Mars and could potentially damage uh, equipment. So there was no sign of any damage. All the equipment still seems to be functioning normally. But that was the comet as it passed very, very close to Mars uh, yesterday. And Mars there vastly overexposed in order to be able to really see the comet and the rest of the stars in the background. So hopefully over the next week we might get to see another picture or two. Maybe we'll get to see what did this comet actually look like from Mars when it would have been you know, gigantic in the sky. Uh, swelling across the sky, having being that close. You know, imagine how much big the moon would be if you brought it three times closer. Well, this will appear, if you get this that close, it's going to appear even larger in the sky. So you're going to have a really, a really big, beautiful sight. And that is as close as an object has passed by a planet without hitting it in recorded history, pretty much. It's hit, they've been hit, but that's about as close. No comet has ever come this close to Earth in recorded history. So. It happens. It might be a once in a million year thing. So eventually it would happen to the Earth again. But will it be a couple years from now? Will it be in our lifetimes? Or will it be, you know, thousands of years down the road or a million years down the road before it actually happens to, or happens to Earth? But 
That was the little astronomical event that happened yesterday. So, questions? Yes, sir. What would happen if the comet were to come that close to Earth? Uh, would it affect our, um, the water and stuff on Earth? Not really. It would, the gravitational force would be, would be minor because it's so, so little material. It's big in terms of size. It's very small in terms of material and how much mass. So it really wouldn't affect anything. It would be a beautiful sight. You'd have lots of little particles streaming around. Meteor showers would be amazing because you have all those particles right there. So you'd have meteor showers. Instead of, if you've ever gone out to look for a meteor shower, you see one, sit there and twiddle your thumbs for a couple, minute or two or five, depending on how intense the shower is. Then you might see another one. Here you'd be seeing them streaming all over the place because you'd have all those little ice particles streaming into the atmosphere. Other than that, it wouldn't do a whole lot. Now if it hit, that would be a big difference. If it actually struck Earth, then it could cause significant damage, even though there isn't a lot of material there. You still have this ball of ice that's 10, 15 miles across. Well, you don't want that coming down from space on top of you. You don't want it coming down on the, in the middle of the ocean either, right? You know, massive tidal waves would, would be. So it could cause significant damage if it were to hit, but if it just comes close like this, it would just be yeah. pretty little spectacle for us. Anything else? Well, we go ahead and get started on chapter 11 as we continue out here. Uh, the next 11, 12, and 13, the next three to four chapters kind of all tie together. We're going to be looking at stars and how they form, how they go through their lives, and how they die. So, we're going to do the first part here. The first part is actually the interstellar medium. So we're going to talk about the material out in space, what's out there that stars can form from, and go through the, towards the end of this chapter, probably on Wednesday, we'll talk more about actually how a star goes about forming. So how do we actually form, form a star? And actually that's what we see is on the cover of the textbook. There is a part of a nebula out in space. Uh, most of the gas and dust out in space is invisible to us. We don't see it. We show pictures of all the pretty nebulae, the ones that are illuminated like this. When there is a bright star there that can give it some energy and cause the dust and gas to glow, then we get some really nice sights. However, if there's not an energy source nearby, if there's just gas and dust there, it's just completely dark. There's nothing to excite that material to cause it to glow and it just stays there completely dark. Here's another, uh, another image. Uh, you can see this is a star forming region. We looked at one of these a little while back. There's actually, you know, stars are probably forming in the tips here. That's why there's denser material here. And that's why it hasn't been washed away. Bright stars off up to the upper, uh, upper right here are pushing, with their energy, are pushing material away, are pushing the gas and dust, trying to clear it out. So they're clearing out that material, the denser parts, are sticking behind, right? They're denser, they're going to hold up better to the radiation pressure. There's a lot more material there and eventually we would come back and be able to see stars here and we'd see, and those would continue the process pushing more and more of this material out. So you have a cloud of material like this that eventually first outform the stars, first form the stars, and then eventually the stars that form from it kind of push that material and clear out what's left over and then we'll be left just with a cluster of stars. As we saw on Friday, we looked at a couple clusters in the, 
in the lab early on, they would have looked, an open cluster would have looked something a lot like this as the stars were just starting to form out of the gas and dust in space. Now in this section, chapter, we're going to look at a couple things and today we're primarily going to look at the interstellar matter and the star forming regions, the different types of nebulae that we see. So we're going to look at these first couple today. And then on Wednesday, we'll hopefully get into looking at how a star like the sun forms. So what is the process that it goes through in order to get something from this gigantic cloud of that gas and dust? We're talking things that are many light years across. The cloud of gas that would have formed the sun would have stretched from here beyond the nearest stars. You know, well beyond those. So it's a tremendous cloud of gas and dust. How do you get that all condensed down to form something like the sun? And we'll see a comparison. How does that work? How do we look at stars of other masses? What if something's a little bit more massive than the sun? How do things change? In terms of formation, jumping the gun here, uh, really there isn't a big change. The process that I'll give you for the sun really applies almost to any star of any mass. There's a little bit of difference in terms of exactly how they, not exactly how they go, but where they end up, where they end up on the main sequence that we drew last time. So they end up in different parts of it, but how they form is actually a very similar process. And we started star clusters, we started looking at last time. We did the, we did the lab last week. We actually looked at some star clusters and how we use those to really help understand uh, star formation. So let's start off with what we see. And when we talk about the interstellar medium, there's two parts to it. It can be composed of two different things. It can have gas. Gas meaning little tiny pieces, you know, atomic particles, atoms, things like hydrogen, things like helium, things like oxygen, nitrogen, carbon. We'll find all sorts of different atoms there. Maybe some very small molecules. Small molecules would be things that only have, you know, a couple atoms together. In some cases you find hydrogen is a molecule. Hydrogen typically wants to bind with another hydrogen atom, so you typically find hydrogen as a molecule, two hydrogen atoms bound together. Same thing with oxygen. Oxygen likes to bind together, so we actually get two oxygen atoms bound together. So small things like that, that would be very, very small. That's the gas. Uh, other thing, carbon monoxide would be another one, a carbon and an oxygen atom bound together. So that would be the gas in the interstellar medium. The dust is actually larger clumps of particles. So we think of dust here on Earth, you know, it's a little tiny specks. Well, that's essentially what we have out in space. Uh, typically a lot of carbon, carbon tends to form many, many lar larger molecules and gathers together more and more pieces so you get bigger things. These are actually little clumps of particles. That dust causes problems. Gas doesn't do much. It sits there. A lot of the interstellar material is gas and if you have something traveling through a gas cloud, uh, let's see, here's a cloud of gas. If we're trying to look at stars through it and we're looking from over here, the starlight passes right through that gas and comes to us. The gas doesn't block out the starlight. Blocks out specific wavelengths, right? We looked at that. It will absorb specific wavelengths if this gas is hydrogen. The red light from these stars, certain wavelengths will be absorbed by the gas. But all the other wavelengths come straight through. 
So we can see stars through gas. If we're looking through dust instead, we can't see through it. If we were looking at dust, all of the light that's traveling, you know, here it just comes pretty much straight through. If we were looking at the same thing with the dust cloud, and we're trying to look at these stars, the dust, it gets absorbed, and at some point in there, a lot of the light from these stars, you know, is absorbed. It doesn't make it through. So looking here, we don't see anything. We can't see those stars. Now, it depends on how much dust is there. If it's just a little bit of dust, it's going to absorb some of the light and might make the stars look fainter, might dim them. You can kind of see that around the edge of this cloud, this image here. Some of these stars, there's lots of little faint stars around here. They're really not that faint. They're really as bright as the other stars that you see. They're just very close to this dust cloud and their light's being absorbed. When you get to the denser portions, then all the light's being absorbed. So in this, in this nebula here, this would be called a dark nebula, blocking out all the light. There's lots of stars here, just as many as there are here. Here, here, we see all these stars. You know, pick a little circle there, count how many stars there are. There's exactly the same number behind this nebula. We just can't see them. All the light that's coming from them, regardless of how bright they are, is getting blocked out by the dust. The other thing that dust does, so dust absorbs light and it reddens light. It makes things look redder. That's because the dust is really, really good at absorbing blue light. Less so at yellow, orange and then yellow. And we get into the greens and the blues and the violets. It can still absorb them, but it's not near as efficient. So when there's not as much dust, the blue lights, the blues and the purples and the greens all get absorbed first. And if you've got white light from a star coming and you take out the blue and the purple and the green and the yellow, what's going to be left? Well, the reds and the oranges. So you're going to see right around the edge of this where the dust isn't quite as thick, all these stars look very red. They might actually be quite blue stars. But their blue light's being absorbed, so all we can see coming through is the red light. You know, some of these stars could be as blue as this one, as blue as this one. But all that blue light is getting absorbed and they're not able to be seen. So that can confuse us in terms of trying to understand what the actual color of a star is. If dust is involved, dust will do two things. It will make things look fainter and therefore we think they're further away than they otherwise would be. Right? If we don't know about the dust, they're going to, we're going to think they're further away. Fainter object looks further away to us. We think it's further away. First thing we'd say if we have two flashlights and we're shining them at, shining them, and same type of flashlight, one looks fainter, we're going to think it's further away. Well, that's what would happen here, and that's what happened early on in trying to understand the interstellar medium. We didn't know everything that was there, so we tended to think that stars were further away than they actually are. So this sort of image shows both of those. It shows where the light's been absorbed. There's lots of stars back there. In fact, there's ways to see them. Not with visible light, but there are ways to see them if we look in other wavelengths. Remember, as the wavelengths changed, the wavelengths got longer and longer, the radiation was better able to penetrate the dust. So all the blue light got absorbed first, then the greens. As we worked our way down to red, here we're getting even all of the red absorbed. But we can keep going. We can keep going down to infrared and down to radio. 
Longer and longer wavelengths are even better able to penetrate that dust and we can actually see through and in fact here's an image of it on the right. There's that same image we saw on the top. Down below it, image of the same part of the sky but instead of being in the visible part of the spectrum, what we'd, no, what we'd normally look at, where it's all blocked out, now we're looking at it in the infrared part of the spectrum. All of a sudden, that very empty part of space is now filled with stars. Infrared light is much better able to penetrate that dust and now we can see that there are still stars, there are still, there are, really are a lot of stars there. Some of them may be still being absorbed, there probably are still more stars than we see because even the infrared will be absorbed to some amount. Not near as much as the longer wavelengths though. Now the other diagram here is showing the light from the star. What do we see? Well if we look at just the starlight we would get a black body spectrum. So the same type of spectra that we've been looking at and we get specific absorption lines. Those lines told us the temperature. And I said there could be some confusion, right? If you're looking at this star and it looks a lot redder than it is, we're going to think it's a different spectral class. We're going to think its temperature might be different. But if we're careful in the classification, what happens, this is if we look at the light here before it's passed through the dust cloud, we'd see the normal star spectrum of the star. When it comes through, a lot of the blue light has been removed. But what has not changed is the lines the lines are still in the exact same spot that they were here. Their intensities may have changed as some of this light has been removed, but the overall pattern remains the same. So we can still use that to figure out what class of star this really is and that allows us to work backwards. Now that we know what kind of star this is, we can work backwards and figure out, okay, how much fainter did this star get? We know how bright it should have been if it's a certain class of star and we can figure out how much dust must have been there. So it's a way to try to measure, you know, how much dust does it take to block out the light from those stars. Not a whole lot, turns out. We do not need a whole lot of dust there, um, at least not, you know, concentrated to really block out the light. But we can do it, but it does very efficiently block out especially those much shorter wavelengths. So here's a picture of our galaxy looking towards the center of it and a couple of star clusters there. This is some of that dust that we see. We see a lot of dust within our galaxy. Our galaxy is a very, very dusty place and lots of these dark areas are actually regions where the dust has concentrated. When we look towards the center of our galaxy, we see a lot of that. We're looking right in the, right in the disk of our galaxy. Think of it as a flattened pancake and you're looking right through the middle of that. There's lots and lots of dust there that blocks out the region. So if we actually go look at the center of our galaxy, uh, can you still do it? Probably reasonably. If you look out early enough in the evening to the south, you're looking towards the center of our galaxy pretty close. Doesn't stand out, right? You don't see this big gigantic bright glow on the southern horizon. Usually late summer, early fall you can see uh, about the center of our galaxy to the south doesn't stand out. You don't see this big giant glow unless you happen to be just north of Baltimore or Washington or something where you do get a bright glow there. But you don't get a bright glow because there's so much dust dropping off that light. If dust didn't do this, that would be, that would be one of the brightest parts of the sky. 
have been one of the very brightest. If dust did not block out all this light, we would be able to see through all of this dust and we'd be able to see straight through towards the center of our galaxy and there's lots and lots of stars there. We can't even see that whole direction just because of the amount of dust. We also see lots of areas of star formation, a couple different uh, nebulae here. Uh, we'll see them in different colors. We see some in red, some more red over here. We see some that are in a bluish color, bluish color over here. I'll explain those in a little bit. There's a couple of different, different, different reasons that we get the two different colors of the nebulae. But when we see that dust, we also see a lot of star formation. So the dust we see, we see the effects of the dust. And that means if there's dust there, there's also a lot of gas around. So there's a lot of material there in those areas. So when we look at some of these, here's a little table here from the text. These nebulae are incredibly big. Here's a set of, here's a set of sizes for four different ones that happen to be close to the central part of our galaxy. You're running six, seven, eight, fourteen parsecs across. Parsec is a little over three light years. So 18, 19 light years there up to what, 30, 40, almost 45 light years in size. Okay, nearest star is four light years. So this one is 10 times. You'll go out to Alpha Centauri and then keep going, do that again. You know, 10 more times. That's how big this was. Density is incredibly small. This is in particles per cubic meter. So a cubic meter Right, here's a meter stick, so one meter by one meter by one meter, make a cube that size, you've got about 80 million particles, 80 to 100 million particles. That sounds like a lot, but that's nothing compared to what you have here in each little cubic centimeter here on Earth in the Earth's atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere has, what is it, I did it in grams. Earth's atmosphere, well let's just put it this way, the best vacuum we can possibly produce on Earth is about 100 times worse than these. So you take a vacuum, you go into an advanced physics lab where they're taking take all the air, you know, have really high pressure, able to get suck all the air out of something. Their vacuum is not going to be as good as the densities of these. So that's how incredibly undense this is. The density of our atmosphere would be, let's see, billions, trillions, octillions. Am I getting it right? I might be off on that, but you know, octillions of times more dense. So many, many times uh, more particles you'd have instead of 10 to the 6th particles, you'd have like 10 to the 26th particles per cubic meter. A lot more particles here on Earth than we possibly see. But even though there are very few particles there, you know, only a million particles, 80 million particles in this cubic meter, because there's so many of these, you know, Put 80 million particles in a cubic meter, that's not going to block out anything as you're moving. That's not going to block out a thing, right? Light's going to shine right through that. That's less dense than our atmosphere. We can see right through the atmosphere. So that's not going to do anything. But when you stretch that over tens of light years, eventually, as this light beam travels, not just through one meter, but through meter upon meter upon meter, eventually it's going to strike a particle. Eventually it's going to get blocked out when it has to go through billions upon billions upon billions of these meters. So there's not a lot of material in each cubic meter, but when you add it up over these incredible sizes, 
we end up with there are many times the mass of the sun, hundreds to thousands of times the mass of the sun in these nebulae. So we form not a single star, but we can form whole clusters of stars, hundreds of stars. Now if you've got 2,600 solar masses, you can form a good cluster of stars out of that. Lots and lots of material would be able to form. So because they're so big, that dust gets blocked out eventually. You might not hit it the first light year or the second or the third, but maybe by the time you've gotten to the eighth or ninth light year as you're traveling through this gigantic dust cloud, eventually that poor little beam of light is going to strike something. So it acts as a gigantic wall blocking out all the light, and that's what we saw in the first couple of images. All right. Now, nebulae, we've got a couple different types I'm going to show you here. This is two pictures again of the same nebula. We're looking at one in visible light and one in uh, infrared again. The one we've already looked at is a dark nebula. Which is really a dust cloud. Blocking out the light from behind it. So in this nebula we actually get three, in this nebula here, we actually get three types all, all at once. You see these darker areas are, part, are dark nebulae. Those are areas where the light's being blocked out, where there's a lot more dust around and it blocks out the light from behind it. There's two other types of nebulae. We see an emission nebula. Emission nebula is what we've talked about, what we looked at when we looked at the spectrum tubes, we saw gas being excited. So it's a hot gas that gets excited by the stars. So stars form, their energy causes the atoms around them, the hydrogen atoms primarily, to glow. And these glow red due to hydrogen. You excite those hydrogen atoms. One of the primary lines that hydrogen gives off is a, red, is a red line. So typically, you see an emission nebula here, and there's a bright star somewhere down here, a couple of bright stars that are putting out a lot of energy that are exciting this gas, causing it to glow. And that will glow with that red line of hydrogen. So if we took a spectrum of that, if we could put our uh, spectroscope our little tubes that we used up to, the, up to and look at that, we'd see the lines of hydrogen. We'd see that bright red line, the blue lines, the violet lines. We'd see all of that there. Now the third type is a reflection nebula. This is caused by dust and the dust reflects as you might guess from the name, blue light. So in this case you still have a very hot star that's causing it. So you have a very bright hot star here. It's sending out all of its light, lots of hot star, lots of blue light, lots of violet light traveling out into space into this dust cloud. Not very dense, not as dense as we had here where it's actually enough to block out the light, but enough to still reflect that light to Earth. So what happens is the star 
over here sends its light into this cloud, that gets reflected and some of that reflection you know, goes off in all directions. So all that blue light that's coming in is now scattered all over the place. So it's all coming in, you know, some of it goes straight back to where it came from. So all that blue light coming in hits this dust cloud. Somewhere as it travels through that, it ends up giving out light. So when we look at it here from Earth, and we look at this, we see that blue light. So this whole nebula will glow in the blue because that light's being scattered. Doesn't matter where you're looking for, it's not scattering it all to us, you know, we're not special. It's not sending it all to us here at Earth, saying let's send all this blue light to Earth. It's sending it all over the place. But, that, so no matter where you look, you're going to see the same kind of thing. That's what's happening in, an, in a reflection nebula. It's dust that is reflecting that. Why does it reflect blue? Well, first of all, the star is blue that's doing this. And the dust is much more effective at reflecting blue light. Right? The blue light is what gets absorbed better as you're going through the dust. It's really getting scattered out all over the place. The red light and the infrared lights are better able to make it through. And that's what you can see in the second image there. This is the same nebula. Again, you might be able to trace out some of the little dust lanes here. The dust lanes that were very dark here. Going down this way, there's that same dust lane right there. There's one going up here. This one goes around and out up here. You can pretty much match up everything that you see in this section here. This difference is we're looking at it in the infrared. So now that dust, which is being heated up, it's warm, not hot, not hot enough to glow with visible light as everything else is there or as a star can, but hot enough to glow in the infrared. So it looks nice and bright in the infrared and we can see in through it, but when we try to look at it in the visible, we see nothing essentially. Nebula, again, I should have qualified. These are three types of nebulae. There's other kinds that have been used as well that we'll look at. Uh, these are very specific general terms. Uh, there's also other ones that have been used in the past. It really means anything that's not a star in the sky. So nebulae have been used to refer to galaxies in the past. Now we rename them. We call them specifically galaxies. But galaxies in the past, there were little spirals in the sky were spiral nebulae. Uh, there are planetary nebulae. There's other kinds that we can see as well. These are just the general terms for, for most of those. Now, emission nebulae, kind of already explained this, but I'll go over it one more time. Generally, we see them in red, and that's because of that hydrogen line, that primary hydrogen line that we saw that glows. When we looked at the hydrogen tube, when we turned it on and you put the spectroscope there, usually the first thing you could see was that bright red line. If you looked a little further off, you could see some of the blue and violet lines as well. The dust in the previous picture that we were looking at is part of the nebula. That's actually star forming in that nebula. That's something you can't always tell for sure. Me certain measurements have to be made to be able to tell you whether that dust is part of the nebula or is it somewhere in between? So is it, if we have the nebula here, we have you know, the nebula out here, is that dust actually part of it? Is it within it? That's what we had in this case, but you could have something where you'd have a nebula and over here 
you might have, you know, dust further out. You might have a dust cloud that's further away, maybe light years away from it. That happens in the center of our galaxy. Most of the light is way back behind it. The dust clouds may be scattered out and blocking out the light. In this case, that's actually part of that nebula. That is a region where stars are forming. And we actually get to see all three of these at once. You can see the darker areas where light is being blocked out. You can see the emission nebula where the hydrogen gas is being excited. And you can see the reflection nebula where the dust is still present. Now eventually that will all get cleared out. Eventually enough stars will form and their radiation pressure will slowly push away all of that dust and gas and you'll clear out that area. And then that, will, that material will eventually come into forming new stars. So in this case we were looking at a little, see in this one nebula we can actually see all of those different ones at once. Now how does the nebula work? Well, I've explained it in words. Here's explaining it in a picture. So what do we see? Well, here's that dust cloud. Imagine this for that image we were looking at in the nebula. There's the dust cloud. And what happens is at some point, for whatever reason, we'll come back to that when we get later in this chapter, stars start to form in it. Something starts them compressing, something compresses the material and starts to get stars forming. So very young stars start to form for some reason. Those stars when they form, very energetic, lots of ultraviolet radiation coming out and that is slowly pushing material away, clearing the material away from them and exciting the gas. So we're going to see an emission nebula around those stars where the gas is present. So the gas is present here. All of that ultraviolet radiation is exciting those, that gas and causing it to glow. So that's what we see around here. We see some darker areas. There's the dustier areas. Those are probably where new stars are going to be forming. They're a little bit denser. They were too dense for the, for the radiation to be able to push away, to be able to completely clear them out. The radiation pressure was not dense enough. These are left behind. So new stars will be forming there and this process would eventually continue through this dust cloud. So you'd form stars here. As those new ones form, then you'd form them deeper and deeper into this dust cloud over time. So that is the, that's the emission nebula there. There's the darker areas. The dusty cloud out here that might be further away in this case. You have starlight coming through. If you imagine all the light coming through, the entire spectrum, red through violet, hitting this dust cloud, well the red light's going to be much more likely to get through. So that means those stars looking through that dust cloud are going to look redder than they should be because more red light is going through. Blue light is getting scattered out all over the place. And the observer here looking at this dusty cloud a little ways away is going to see a blue reflection nebula. So dark nebula is a d denser area blocking out all the light. An emission nebula is a hot gas. Gas being excited by that star glows typically in the red. And a reflection nebula is caused by dust that is reflecting the blue light. So it reflects the blue light from the star primarily and sends that through, scatters that out, out into space which is what we'll be able then to be able to see from the Earth. Okay. When we look at some of these, these are some of the images that we've looked at. Uh, we had one picture of the day like, like this before. 
Uh, if we look deep inside these nebulae, so this is the nebula, this is what we'd see if we just took an image of it from Earth. You'd see the nice nebula there and if we look deep down in the central portions, we can actually see some of the denser, dustier areas. You see much, little, much less light coming through here, much less light coming through here. Here it's kind of being uh, evaporated away. So they're talking about photoevaporation where the light is uh, disintegrating the particles. So if you have dust particles, that light, energetic enough, can actually rip those dust particles apart. Eventually that's what will happen here. Either stars will form at these tips here, here. Stars will start to form at these. And the rest of the material will then eventually be pushed away. Will be washed away by the intense energy of the stars that have already formed. So we see some areas around it, that's where the star is really, the stars that have already formed that are not even in this image further out are actually eating away at this part of the nebula. Eventually it will be gone. Not next week, not next month, not a hundred years from now, but tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years from now, that slow process eating away at it will eventually dissipate this entire, this entire section. This one, this one, this one, all that will constantly be removed and new stars will have formed. So more stars will have formed that will continue the process and keep it going further back into this nebula. So it's not just that stars form, there's a big interaction between the stars and the nebulae. The nebula forms the stars and then the stars essentially in return rip apart the nebula. So eventually the nebula that formed the stars will be gone. We get to see this intermediate stage in a few cases where we happen to catch it at just the right instant. Catch it at just the right time when we're happening to look at it and we're then able to see this stage. It doesn't last a long time astronomically speaking. Any section of where stars are forming goes through this. Many times we just see the cluster of stars afterwards. This has already been done and cleaned up. Other times we still see the big dark nebulae where stars are just beginning to form. It hasn't gotten to this process yet. So these are just a few where we happen to catch them in just the right stage to be able to see the process. And that's really how we put formation of stars together. How do we understand it? We can't watch it. I can't just, okay, let's watch this dark gas cloud and you know, spend my career as an astronomer watching it collapse. It won't work. It takes hundreds of thousands of years. So what you could do instead is study them at all different stages, right? To study a human, a little bit harder to compare because you could take a human from a baby and watch it grow. But if you wanted to do a report in a couple months about a person and how they age without knowing anything else, what which could you do? Well, you could look at all different stages and try to piece together. Instead of watching one person go from birth through death, you could watch people at all different stages and try to piece together, you know, here's this stage, here's this stage, here's this stage. We, that's what we have to do with stars because the times are so long. We can't sit there and watch any one star go through its entire life. You know, even the, even the stars that live the shortest time last millions of years. So there's no way we can be able to watch that. We have to piece together by looking at stars that are in the process of forming in different stages that we'll look at on Wednesday and then as they go through their entire lives. How are we doing? Emission nebulae are going to tell you what they're made up of. 
So I said they're red due to hydrogen. Hydrogen being about 90% of all the atoms in the universe. So any of these nebulae are going to have lots and lots of hydrogen in them. So they're going to glow red. But that's not the only thing you're going to see. If you take a spectrum of it, there's that very bright line of hydrogen right there, that big thick line, all that hydrogen in this nebula. But, and you get some more hydrogen down here, but we also see things like helium. There's helium lines here. Helium has that red line as well, plus the yellow, and some down here in the blue. We see oxygen. We see neon. We find all sorts of different elements, all sorts of different common elements in the nebula. So much as a star, we can learn what it's made up of. We can learn what the nebula is made up of by taking a spectrum of it. And we find, as we find with stars, that pretty much everything we see is 90% or so hydrogen, about 9 to 10% helium, and scattering of all the other elements. Everything else in the periodic table after those two first elements is just a little scattering and you know, the rounding errors for pretty much. So if we take a spectrum of this, that's what we'd see. If we took a spectrum of a reflection nebula instead, we'd get a continuous spectrum of the star. We're really seeing just the spectrum of the star. Mostly blue light because the star looked primarily blue, but it would be reflecting in some part all of the light and we'd see the spectrum of the star. We wouldn't see an emission nebula like this. So another way that you can distinguish between the two is by looking at the spectrum that we see. So that can tell us what type of nebula it is. It can also tell us what it's made up of. So what do we see? We see hydrogen and helium and oxygen and neon. We can tell what this nebula is actually composed of. Now when we look at these dark dust clouds, here's one in two images again. You look off to the left again. There's that area where there's hardly any visible light. It's there. There are hardly any stars. You don't see, see very few stars going through this section, running kind of diagonally through the image. There's lots of stars there. I showed you that with some of the infrared images. This time we're looking at it in the radio instead. Some of these are very, very dense and very cool. They might only be tens of degrees, 10, 20, 50 degree Kelvin. Remember Kelvin goes down to zero and stops. That's as cold as you can possibly get. Empty space is about three degrees. So these are only a few degrees colder than empty space and that's about 400 and some degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So extremely cold, not something we can imagine. You know, think it gets cold in the winter when it's 10 below? Well that's, you know, that's a summer, that's a summer boiling day compared to, compared to these temperatures. The second one is of the same area, this is the same region of the sky, but instead of taken invisible, this is taken in the radio part of the spectrum. Radio part of the spectrum, we look for the brightness. Where is most of the radio waves, where are most of the radio waves being admitted, emitted? And we see this very dense area right here where there's no stars, we're getting a lot of radio waves. It's very, very bright to a radio telescope. Looks dark to an optical telescope, but very bright to a radio telescope because those long wavelengths can make it through. They can make it through the dust. Short wavelengths can't. Blue light gets absorbed very easily. Then green, so on through reds. If you've got enough density, you're absorbing the red and even the infrared. The radio would be the hardest to absorb because it's the longest wavelength. It goes right through that dust as though nothing is there. So it's one way that we have to actually map out how, where the material is in the galaxy. I showed you a picture of the center of our galaxy and we couldn't, we couldn't see to the center. 
We can in radio. In the radio part of the spectrum, if we point a telescope down towards the south, towards the center of our galaxy, it's very bright. It's one of the brightest radio objects in the sky. It's not one of the brightest visible objects, right? Otherwise, we'd all know about it because you'd hear about, like you hear about Orion or the Big Dipper, you'd hear about this big bright object that you can look at. We don't see it. All that dust blocks it out. All right. So, again, here we have the same thing, another one of these uh, objects. There's the dust cloud. We're seeing the combination again. This is, this is looking towards, not quite towards the center of our galaxy, but close. Uh, Antares is the bright, bright star in Scorpius uh, that's close to the center of our galaxy. But we again see the dark reflection nebulae blocking out all of those stars behind it, or dark dust cloud, I'm sorry, the reflection nebula up here where you get light from this hot star being reflected by the dust and lots of emission nebulae. You see all the reddish color, that's all emission due to hydrogen. The other object you see here is much, much further away. This is M4 is actually a globular cluster. Uh, globular clusters, we looked at one last time, right? You actually plotted out not all of the stars. They have hundreds of thousands of stars, so we only plotted, you know, 20 or 30 or so. Uh, but they actually have hundreds of thousands of stars in them. And those are something we'll look at, we'll come back when we look at our galaxy. They're actually, in a way, like little tiny mini satellite galaxies of our own. There's a whole bunch of them that orbit around that formed very early on when our galaxy did. So we will come back to those a little bit more. But again, we start to see lots and lots of these nebulae. But most of the dust we can't see directly. We could see it in the infrared in some cases. We could see it in the radio. In terms of visible, we can only see it by what it does. You know, if that dust cloud were against more empty space, it would be real hard to tell what's there. All right, let me see. Here's another one. Here's a real pretty one. This is the Horsehead Nebula. This is in the constellation of Orion. And it's a nebula that happens to, for now at least, look like you know, the shape of a knight in chess, perhaps. Little horse head there. And one of the more distinctive ones. But it's the same kind of thing. There's a lot of dust here blocking out the, blocking out the material from behind it. So here's an image of it. And you see that there's a darker area where stars are forming. We see a lot of that in Orion. Orion is one of the bigger regions of star formation that's close by to us. And we see lots of dusty areas. We see lots of reflection. We see reflection nebulae. We see emission nebulae. All the things that we associate with star formation are present around this, that part of the sky. So this is just one of the ones that's more distinctive. Same process, same everything that we've been talking about that's going on here. I said it looks like this for now because these things are constantly changing. Again, it's looked like this for hundreds and thousands of years. It will continue to look like this for hundreds and thousands of years. But tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, slowly the radiation of those stars is eating away at it and the Horsehead Nebula will eventually be gone turn into something else. You know, what nebula will it look like next? You know, what, will, what will strike somebody's imagination when they happen to, to look at this? All right, let me probably finish up here. Let me just mention this. Where do we see the gas? This is where the gas, this is how we actually can see some of the gas in the radio part of the spectrum. And it's because of hydrogen, again, lots of hydrogen out there, but it's a 
transition in the hydrogen in the hydrogen atom. Now normally we looked at the energy levels, right? We looked at those and you had to jump you had to jump up really high energy levels to emit visible light. It turns out there is another state of hydrogen where you have proton and electron, a hydrogen atom. You can have two different cases. Each of those has a spin associated with it. And you can have two different things. You can have those spins spinning in the same direction. Okay, so the proton and electron are spin, have their spins going in exactly the same direction. Or they can be going in the opposite direction. One can be spinning clockwise, the other spinning counterclockwise essentially. This is a slightly more stable state. But this one is very common and it's very easy to jump between these two states. In order to see that visible line of hydrogen, you've got to have ultraviolet radiation to get enough energy to push you up there. So you need a lot of energy to be able to do that. You need a hot star to be able to see that hydrogen line that we've been looking at. To see this, you don't need very much energy. Hydrogen atoms bumping into each other can produce this change, can actually cause these spins to flip. And then when they flip back, it gives off a photon. How big is that photon? Uh, 10, 20, where are we? Right about there. About that big. That's about how big, not the photon is, how big along the wavelength is. About 21 centimeters. So a very, very long wavelength means it doesn't take a lot of energy to be able to form that, but it's very easy to map out in the interstellar medium. So very easy to form. It doesn't require a lot of, we don't have to have a hot star nearby it. We don't need any other energy source. A gas cloud of hydrogen can pretty much produce this by itself. Just needs to bump into each other a little bit. And that's enough to cause these the hydrogen atoms to do this flip, to flip their spins, and to be able to see that, that energy. This allows us to really map out hydrogen throughout the galaxy. So that's how one of the ways we can really do that. So I am going to go ahead and stop there, and I will come back to that because I believe, yeah, that's really kind of just showing some of it. I'll come back to that, finish this up, review this a little bit on Wednesday, and then we'll go on to really talk about how the stars actually form in the first place. So how do we actually get these stars to form from all, learning with all the basics that we've gone over today. Uh, don't forget article review by 6 o'clock tomorrow. If you don't have the lab, you can, you can also scan or photograph that and submit that online if you need to as well. Otherwise, I can take them now if you have those as well. I will not be here. I have to leave, so I will not be here for office hours today if anybody was planning on coming by. So I will not be here today, but I'll be back on Wednesday.